You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. Exodus 20, verse 1. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. And rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you. The fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Bow with me, please, for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we pray it would be effectual as it is preached today, that it would transform hearts of the lost and turn them towards God, that they might have the second birth, and that your people would be sanctified and pointed to Jesus Christ. Anoint the hearing and preaching of your word. Amen. We're in the Ten Commandments, as I mentioned, and the Ten Commandments are the constitution of reality. This is reality. You want to live in reality? live in accordance with the Ten Commandments. This is the way God has designed the world. God has designed the world to operate within these laws. So if you want to strike out against reality, go against the grain of reality, then you violate the Ten Commandments. If you want to live within the context of reality, the parameters of reality, then you live according to the Ten Commandments. This is the only way the world works. It doesn't work any other way. This is how the world works, and it's the only way the world works. It's the natural law, the law of nature. This is how nature was designed to work. It's embedded in nature. Here it is. The Ten Commandments are a guide for life. They guide your life. This is a dark world. Without the Ten Commandments, it's like you're walking around in a room with all kinds of sharp objects and hot things that could cut and burn you. You walk by the Ten Commandments, it's like you turn the lights on. You're not bumping into things that you shouldn't bump into and getting hurt. These are your guide. In fact, they're your counselors. As you go along the way, the Ten Commandments will speak to you. They talk to you. And you listen to them. And they counsel you. And they guide you along the way. The Ten Commandments convict you of sin. They show you that you're a sinner. They show you where you're wrong and where you've been unrighteous before God and and, and the things that you have done that are evil in his sight, they do all of these things. They're counselors, they're guides, they're wisdom, they're light. They bring conviction for sin. But there's one thing they can't do. And the one thing that they can't do is save you. They can't get you forgiveness of sins. And to find forgiveness of sins, you don't go to the Ten Commandments because they're inflexible. They're hard and fast rules. They do not change. But you go to God in Jesus Christ who has purchased his redemption by his blood in accordance with the law and the scriptures. He's done so in a legal way by fulfilling the law. And then his death on the cross is our substitutionary atonement that satisfied God. 
And so the Ten Commandments are inflexible. They are good. We are bad. And then Jesus offers forgiveness for our violation of God's law. So if you've come under conviction for your sins, as I preach this sermon on, on the Ninth Commandment, you need to run to Jesus Christ. Don't stay there and just dwell in the conviction, but go to Jesus and find forgiveness and, and forsake your rebellion. Jesus promises to forgive you, and he will. He offers full pardon, and if you come to him, he will in no wise cast you out. And today, as I mentioned, we are in the ninth commandment, the ninth commandment. Exodus 20, verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, ninth commandment, it speaks to the importance of honesty. It speaks to the importance of telling the truth. And then it demonstrates that we have a right to our own reputation, for good or bad. That we earn our reputation and we have a right to it. So just as, if you look at the previous commandment, you shall not steal, the eighth commandment, we have a right to our own property. Well, this commandment, you shall not bear false witness, tells us we have a right to our own reputation. Or the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, we have a right to our own marriages and our own spouse, well, the ninth commandment tells us, you shall not bear false witness, we have a right to our own reputation. Or, if you look at the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, you have the right to your own life, right not to be murdered, well, you come down to the ninth commandment and it indicates that you have the right to your own reputation. So, the ninth commandment tells us we have to live in the, within the context of honesty, reality, and it tells us that we have the right to our own reputation. Here's how I'm going to outline the sermon today. It's very straightforward. I'll outline it for you. The first question I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask three questions. And the first question I'm going to ask is, what is bearing false witness? So let's define that. The second question I'm going to ask is, why is it sin? So why is this such a bad thing? Can't just say what I want? And then the third question I'm going to ask is, how does it apply? I'm going to talk about the prohibitive dimensions of it. I'm going to talk about the positive commands embedded within it. And then I'm going to talk about the heart. What is bearing false witness? Why is it bad? Why is it sin to do this? And how does it apply? How does this apply? Let me start with my first question that I'm going to ask. And the first question is this. What is bearing false witness? What is it? Exodus 20, verse 16 says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. What does this mean? Well, it means it's a prohibition of trafficking in lies and deceit. It's very bare bones. It prohibits the trafficking of lies and deceit, exchanging lies and deceit. The letter of the law, which we should go by, we should go deeper down to the spirit of the law, but the letter of the law immediately deals with being a witness specifically in court. And so bearing false witness against your neighbor in court. So perjury, the sin of perjury, the crime of perjury. But the principle of this law extends to all of life. And it is a commandment simply to live in reality. Live in the way the world, or live in the world the way God designed it. Let me read to you. Edward Fisher has been so helpful as I've studied the Ten Commandments up until now, and he goes into this commandment as we talk about what does it mean to bear false witness. He says, in his commentary on it, he says, Thou shalt not think or speak anything contrary to truth, or that may tend to the hurt or hindrance either of thine own or thy neighbor's good name. So it means that you're not to speak in a way that hurts your neighbor's good name without conclusive evidence. And an affirmative part included in these words, but thou shalt by all good means seek to maintain them both according to truth and good conscience. So you're supposed to seek not just to speak lies, you're not supposed to speak lies, yes, but then you're supposed to preserve your neighbor's good name. So you're actually supposed to go out of your way to protect your name, your reputation, and you're supposed to go out of your way to protect your neighbor's refu reputation. At its very heart, it prohibits. So what is 
uh, ninth commandment violation. What is this speaking of? At its very heart, it prohibits the trafficking of lies and deceit, especially about another person. It prohibits the trafficking of lies and deceit, especially about another person. That's what bearing false witness is. Why is it sin? Why is this so bad? Just to find what it is. It is a prohibition against trafficking in lies and deceit, exchanging lies and deceit, especially about another person's character. Why is it so bad? Why is it sin? Let me just state at the outset that two out of the Ten Commandments deal with the tongue, sins of the tongue. The second, or rather the fourth, or the third and the ninth commandment. You should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who taketh his name in vain. That's a sin of the tongue. And then you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. That's a sin of the tongue. And so there's two out of ten. One in five of the Ten Commandments deals with sins of the tongue. Let me just read a portion of Scripture for you to refresh you over how dangerous of a body part the tongue is, how dangerous speech is. When speech is not employed properly, when it is employed sinfully, it is a deadly thing. James 3, chapter 3, verses 2 through 8 says, For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every bird or beast and or every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So your tongue has the potential to be a flamethrower. You ever medieval kind of mythology? You hear about the dragons, the fire breathing dragons? And they, they show up in a village and they scorch the village. Well, that's what your tongue is. And when you go around and you tell lies, you're a fire-breathing dragon, and the fire that's coming out of your mouth is set on fire by hell itself. So by going around and spreading lies, you're basically spreading hell. And hell is coming right out of your mouth, and it's exposing the fact that hell lives in your heart. That's essentially what lying is, what bearing false witness is. It's exposing the fact that hell itself lives in your heart and then it is spreading hell by means of your words across the face of the earth, in your family, in your community, in your church, in your country, wherever. That's what the spreading of lies is. You're a fire-breathing dragon set on fire by hell and your words have a scorched earth policy on this green earth that God created. Why is this sin so bad? Well, I just mentioned a little reason there, but I'm going to give you the bigger reason, the big principle here that's at stake. So follow along with me as I explain why this sin is so bad. Language, human language, and the use of words assumes something. And it assumes that we are created in God's image. God is a speaking God. Read Genesis 1 and 2. What do we learn about God? He speaks, and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said. God himself is a God who speaks. In fact, we have this Bible before us, and what's the Bible evidence of? It's evidence of the fact that God is a God who speaks, tells us things. He communicates through words. And so God is a God who speaks. He's a speaking God. He's a talking God. And we... Is his people are created in his image. We're created in the image of the talking God, and because we're created in the image of the talking God, the speaking God, we are created to speak. We're created to use our words. And in fact, we're created to use our words to build things. 
I'll give you an example. First of all, God created the world with his words. He said, and it was. Well, maybe, let's, let's assume somebody is, for example, a general contractor, and it's his job to build a building. So he's got to get all the trades lined up, all the tradesmen lined up, and they've got to build this building. What's the general contractor do? He speaks, the tradesman does what he's told, and the building's built. By our words, we are to build. Maybe you're an office manager, and you're an office manager, and you go in your office, and you're trying to produce a product or provide a service. And so how do you get the office staff and the team lined up to provide the product or the service? Well, what do you do is, is you speak, and then it happens, just like God. And so we're created to be speaking creatures. We're created by the God who speaks. We're created in the image of the God who speaks. And then we are created to speak because we're created in the image of the God who speaks by the God who speaks. So we're created to speak. And God, the God who speaks, has created reality with his speech. He created reality with his speech. So the God who speaks creates reality with the speech. The world that you see is the world that God created. When I speak the truth, my word is lining up with the reality that God created. Give you an example. I stand up here and I say, the snow on the ground outside is white. What am I doing? I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you the way that God designed the world. This is, my words are now lining up with the reality that God created. But then I come in here and I say, the snow that's on the ground right now is hot pink. That's what it is. And I try to convince you, what am I doing? I'm trying to create a reality with my words that is in contradiction with God's reality. I'm creating an anti-reality, a false reality. And so what is speaking? A lie, what's speaking a lie? Speaking a lie is an attempt to create an anti-reality that stands in contrast with the actual reality that God's created. And in essence, the person who lies is attempting to play God. God creates reality with his words. The liar attempts to create a false reality with his words and therefore is putting himself in the place of God. It's interesting. The minute you remove God from the picture you start to see the breakdown of truth and honesty and the ability to, to trust and believe that there is such a thing as truth and honesty. It's interesting. I learned this week as I was studying that Charles Darwin, he's the father of evolution who wrote the, the book Origin of Species, he said that he had a very hard time believing in man's ability to communicate truth. And he said he had a hard time believing in man's ability to communicate truth because man was an animal who essentially evolved from lower forms of life. He says, well, if I can't trust an ape to be able to communicate reality, I can't trust a man to communicate reality. See what I'm saying? You, you remove God as the first principle of reality away from the system, and then what happens is the ability to articulate, communicate, believe, and understand reality falls apart. But if you have God as the first principle of the system, our system of belief, then reality can remain intact. And, and the attempt to lie, lying, is an attempt to create a false reality. It's standing up and saying, this is the world the way it is, when in reality it's this way, it's an attempt to create an anti-reality, and it's putting yourself in the place of God and essentially call, calling God a liar. We believe we're created in God's image, and so we can articulate true thoughts, and when we can articulate thoughts, we're essentially refusing to submit to the reality that God created, and what we're doing is we're attempting to create a false reality, an anti-reality. Lying is an attempt to recreate reality, and this, by the way, is we look out at our world today, we see this manifesting all over the place, don't we? People not just attempting to create a false reality, but to suck us into their false reality. I'll give you a really good example. You look at the whole tranny movement, right? What is it? Well, you get some guy, he's a man, and he says, I'm a girl now. And he puts on a dress and throws on some makeup and, and says, I'm a girl now. And then he 
And then he says, and I want you to call me a girl. Call me a she. These are my pronouns. So what's he doing? He's fabricated reality. He's fabricated an anti-reality. A false reality. And by trying to thrust his desired pronouns upon you, he's trying to suck you into this lie and this false universe that he's created. This anti-reality and essentially making himself to be God. God gave him his gender sexuality. And then he's trying to say, no, 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 I don't like what God did. I'm doing what I want to do. And you have to believe me instead of believe God. It's creating a fabricated anti-reality, a lie. That's essentially what this is. Or even the sodomite marriage. What's the government done in this particular case? They've declared what marriage, they've said this is marriage, when in reality that's not what God says marriage is. But they declare this is marriage, and they expect you to believe it. Well, it's not marriage. God said marriage between a man and a woman. And so they're creating an anti-reality, a fabricated reality, a false synthetic reality. And they're putting it in contradiction to God's reality and essentially declaring that they are God, whoever is fabricating this. And so we, we cannot go along with false reality. Satan is the father of lies and Jesus Christ is the truth. You have to either live in the lie or live in the truth. If you live in the lie, you're living for Satan. If you live in the truth, you're living for Jesus Christ. Lying is using your God-given ability to speak to create a false reality instead of submitting to the reality that God created. It is an attempt to play God and it is arrogant and it is prideful. Let me give you a few examples of what the Bible says about how serious of a sin this is. I've, I've talked to you about why it's a bad sin. Let me give you a few examples of why this is, a, or of where the Bible calls this a very serious sin. In Proverbs 6, it actually says that God hates false witnesses. It doesn't say that he hates the bearing of false witness. He actually gets personal and says, I hate the false witness. Look at what it says in Proverbs 6, verse 16 through 19. There are six things that the Lord hates. So he hates some things. Seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. So he hates the haughty eyes. He hates the lying tongue. He hates the hands that shed innocent blood. The heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run evil. And then in verse 19, a false witness. A false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers. The lies that lead to discord among brothers. He actually hates the false witness. God does. He hates the false witness. Jesus commands us to tell the truth in Matthew chapter 5, verse 37. He says, let your yes simply be yes or your no, no. Anything more than this comes from the devil. And then in Acts chapter 5, we see the first instance of public sin and scandal in the New Testament church with Ananias and Sapphira, and God strikes them dead for lying. He kills them. God himself killed liars publicly to make a scene and so that we would remember acts chapter 5 verse 3 peter said ananias why has satan filled your heart to lie to the holy spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land and then you go down to verse 5 and it says when ananias heard these words he fell down and breathed his last and great fear came upon all who heard of it same thing happens with sapphira a few verses later they lie to the church they lie to people in the church and then the Holy Spirit strikes them dead publicly to make an example of them how much God hates lies and how much he despises liars. In Revelation chapter 21 verse 8, we find that liars go to hell. They're listed amongst the sinners that go to hell in Revelation 21 verse 8. But it is for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, it is for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars... Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is, these are the liars. So, if you tell lies, the Bible says all these terrible things about you. What you're trying to do is you're trying to create a false reality because you prefer your false reality over God's reality. And you're trying to put yourself in the place of God. Even if you're lying to cover up sin, what are you doing? Well, in God's reality, the reality that he, that he created, what God is doing is he is simply saying there's consequences for sin. That's God's reality. But then you sin and then you lie about your sin. What you're doing is you're trying to create a reality so you don't have to deal with the consequences of your sin. And people that tell lies regularly, they start to believe their lies. 
They don't even tell the difference between truth and lie anymore. They convince themselves that lies are truth. So if a man really thinks he's a woman, I actually think that he might think he's a woman. Doesn't mean we need to buy into the lie. In fact, we shouldn't. But he may have actually convinced himself because he's so used to lying and living in this synthetic, fabricated reality. This is the world we live in. And lying poses a lot of practical problems as we talk about the sinfulness of lying. First of all, liars need to have good memories. It's exhausting to be a liar. Because not only do you have to remember reality, you have to remember your fake reality. You have to remember the lie. And then you have to remember the lie about the lie about the lie about the lie. So this is an exhausting thing to live within the context of lies. It's an exhausting exercise. It leads to the breakdown of relationships. It leads to the breakdown of society. And liars eventually start to believe their own lies. And one of the things about liars, telling lies, deceit, is that it starts off very strong. So usually people will believe the first lie that you tell, and maybe the second or the third. But the minute you get caught, they stop believing you. So you get weaker the more you lie. But the thing about the truth is that it makes you stronger over the time. Over time. So let's say I tell the truth and somebody doesn't believe me. And then they find out that I did tell the truth and they regret not believing me. Well, then my reputation goes before me. And the next time I tell the truth and people are tempted to disbelieve me, they're more prone to believe me. Do you understand? If you tell lies, your ability to lie becomes weaker over time. If you tell truth, your ability to tell the truth and it to be recognized as the truth grows stronger over time. And people who tell the truth keep themselves out of trouble. People who tell lies get themselves into trouble. I'll give you an example of why I believe this. Let's say, let's say there's a young lady, and this particular young lady is known to tell lies. And all of her friends are going out to participate in some activity of ill repute. They're going out to drink and party and commit sexual immorality. Now, if that young lady is known to tell lies... Her friends who want to go out and do sin are more apt to invite her because they're confident that she's going to lie to cover her tracks. So it opens the door for more temptation, is what I'm trying to say. But let's say there's a young lady and she tells the truth and tells the truth and tells the truth, and she's got a bunch of friends who want to go out and participate in activities of ill repute, drink and commit sexual immorality, drugs and whatever, go party. And they know that she's a truth teller. Are they going to invite her to their illicit activities? No. So when you are, you know, when you have the reputation of telling the truth, it all of a sudden shuts down other temptations. But when you have the reputation of being the liar, it opens doors to more temptations, is what I'm trying to tell you today. So, aside from all the theological and philosophical reasons why lying is wrong because you create a false reality and you play God, it's also exhausting, it's also more difficult to do in the long term to tell the truth, it also weakens you, and it also makes more opportunity for sin. Creates more avenues of temptation. Lying is sin. And I just explained to you why it's sin. It's bad, bad news. So having said all that, I've defined what it is. It's the trafficking of deceit. I've now explained why it's wrong, why it's sin. Now I'm going to ask one final question. And the question that I'm now asking is, how does this apply? How does this apply? And I'm going to give you what it prohibits. And conversely, I'm going to give you what it demands. So you hope you've learned by now that there's some ways to apply the commandments. And one of the ways to apply is you figure out what it prohibits. Another way to apply is you figure out, well, what, it, what does it demand? Because if it prohibits one evil, it demands the opposite good. And then I'm going to talk about the heart. Because the commandments don't just measure our actions, and they don't just govern our actions, but they govern our affections. They govern our affections. And so how does this apply to the heart? But I'm talking about how this commandment, this 
ninth commandment applies. How does it apply? And it applies by prohibiting a number of things. It prohibits dishonesty. It prohibits slander. It prohibits using your words to wrongfully tarnish somebody's reputation. So I'll look at Leviticus chapter 19, verse 16, which says, You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. It prohibits slander. It's, this is the trafficking of bad reports or unsubstantiated bad reports. It's one thing to traffic bad reports that are truth, which could be sin or might not be sin, depending on the context. But every time you traffic bad reports that are unsubstantiated or that are lies, uncorroborated with no evidence behind them, you're in sin. Ninth commandment violation. It's sin. You're damaging somebody's reputation by your words. You're using your words to wrongfully damage somebody's reputation when that person has a right to his or her own, her own reputation. So let me give you a few quotes from some commentators that I appreciated on this as I talk about what this particular commandment prohibits. Matthew Henry said, it prohibits in common converse slandering, backbiting, tail-bearing, aggravating what is done amiss, and making it worse than it is. So what's that? Speaking ill of somebody when there's unsubstantiated evidence and it's not necessary. Backbiting, so being good to their face, evil behind their back. Tail-bearing, making up stories. Aggravating what is done. So somebody does something wrong, and then you make it sound bigger than it actually is. That's a ninth commandment violation. Embellishing the sin of another person. And anyway, endeavoring to raise our own reputation upon the ruin of our neighbors. So one of the things that people do, people do this in, in the context of workplaces all the time is, oh, I don't like so-and-so. They're in competition with me to get in with the boss and get a raise. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to spread lies about so-and-so so that I look better. I make myself feel better by spreading lies about that person. And this type of terrible behavior comes out within the human nature a lot. You shouldn't be using lies and creating false realities and trafficking in slander to make yourself look better at the expense of somebody else. Another commentator, John Gill, he talked about traducing his character by innuendos, sly insinuations, and evil suggestions. What's that mean? It, it means you don't have to be direct in the lie. You can just give a little innuendo in what you say. So if people are cluing in, they're picking up the hint of what you're saying. You know, if they're, if, they're, if they're reading the room, they know what you're saying. You're not coming right out and saying it. So you can save face if you're questioned. But there's a little bit of innuendo. There's a little bit of a sleight of hand. There's an evil suggestion. And, and you're just poisoning the well enough to preserve your own integrity in their sight while also su making suggestive doubts in the mind of somebody else. This is a ninth commandment violation, and reputation and in his trade and business. So you're spreading lies about his trade, about his business, about the good or service that he offers, his own reputation or her own reputation, in whatever endeavor that they are doing, wherever they're hanging their shingle, and you're saying, yeah, it's, it's no good, it's wrong, it's bad, and this is a Ninth Commandment violation. You're, and not only is it a Ninth Commandment violation, it's an Eighth Commandment violation because you're not just stealing the reputation, you're stealing the ability to produce. Okay, so you're harming somebody's ability to produce by creating a false reality. And in creating this false reality, you're spreading innuendos, sly insinuations, and evil suggestions to damage the reputation of someone's trade or business. John Trapp said, neither bear it nor hear it, raise nor receive wrong reports of another, make a lie nor love it when it is made. You hear that? One of the ways that we apply the Ten Commandments, it's not just a sin to violate the Ten Commandments, it's a sin to be complicit in the violation of one of the Ten Commandments. So, if, if, I, if I'm complicit in a murder, but I don't actually carry out the murder, I'm still guilty of murder. For example, if you look at the New Testament, the Jews didn't kill Jesus, the Romans did. But the Jews were complicit in the murder, why? Because they whipped the Romans up. So now they're guilty of his murder because they whipped them up. They provided the opportunity for it to happen. 
So they're complicit. So it's a sin to be complicit in a violation of the law. So yes, it's a sin to spread the bad report, but it's also a sin to listen to the bad report, to hear it. Some people, okay, I won't gossip, but I'm going to sit around, I'm going to love listening to it. Take it in and chew on it for a while because that's a juicy piece of information. Well, now you're complicit in the sin. You didn't share it, but you received it. So that's a violation of the Eighth Commandment. Neither bear it nor hear it, raise nor receive it. Make a lie nor love a lie. Now, we can't be complicit. So let's talk about this prohibition of being complicit in Ninth Commandment violations. Let's talk about this prohibition. Therefore, if we're not to be complicit, we're not supposed to listen to it. I do this a lot. Uh, I've, I've done it more in the past. It doesn't seem to happen as much as it used to. But somebody will come up to me and they'll bring a bad report about so-and-so in the church. Pastor, you should know what such and such a person is doing. It's bad, real bad. To which I will reply, typically, I'll reply, well, have you talked to him or her? Well, no, pastor, I wanted you to do that. What do you think I say? I don't want to be complicit in the spreading of this bad report. So I say, A, leave me alone and don't come talk to me about it until you've talked to him or her. Or B, oh, there she is right over there. Let's go talk to her. Right? That this is how you should handle these things. And I've done this in the past. I've had people come to me and complain to me about other people in the church. And I say, oh, there he is over there. Let's go talk to him. I bring the person to, you know, and say, hey, and then right to his face, hey, this person has something to say about you right there, right? And, and what does that do? Well, then now I tell you this story. I just repeated it in front of a few hundred people. You're probably not going to come to me with bad reports unless you have strong evidence for them, are you? So it isolates me from the false reports. And now I preserve all kinds of mental energy so I don't have to be caught, not caught up in all that stuff. And it's, a, it's very freeing to live in a context where people don't want to bring you this nonsense. It's, it's a wonderful place to live because you just don't get sucked down into this bog. I've told people in the past to knock it off. Just knock it off, go deal with it, and then come talk to me if the evidence is there. Or Proverbs 25 verse 23 says... The north wind brings forth rain, and a backbiting tongue brings forth angry looks. One of the things that you should do if someone brings you gossip or slander or unsubstantiated ill reports about another person is just give them a dirty look. You have the Bible's not, not just the Bible's permission, but the Bible sanctions it. The dirty, there are times to give people dirty looks. Someone comes to me with an ill report of another person, just look at them with disgust. Just do, you don't even have to say anything. Shake your head. Roll your eyes. Really? Don't waste my time. Okay? But there, there's a process to deal with bad reports. And the process is, if you have a concern about somebody else and you think they're in sin, then you go and talk to that person out of love. But you can't go just on, well, I heard this. There actually, evidence has to be corroborated. You know, if there's two or three witnesses, now the evidence corroborated, and now you have grounds for an allegation, and you can investigate it. And by the way, it's possible to tell lies without speaking. You can tell lies without saying anything. Proverbs 6, verse 12 says, A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech. So he lies with his speech, yes. Winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart, devises evil, continually sowing discord. So what's he doing? Nonverbals. Just giving a nonverbal that communicates disgust with a person or dis communicates bad news about a person or communicates an attempt to smear another person when it's unsubstantiated, ill-founded, not done in love, all of these things are attempts to break the Ninth Commandment and are violations of the Ninth Commandment. You know, you're not giving nonverbals. Shouldn't be doing that. These are all prohibited to give nonverbals in a way that slanders or smears somebody's character for unsubstantiated reasons. And by the way, the prohibition against bearing false witness includes flattery. You shouldn't flatter people. You ever notice that people that flatter people also slander people? 
Why do people flatter people? Well, they flatter people because they want to get their own way with them. Why do they slander people? Well, they slander people because they want to get their own way. And typically, if someone doesn't get his own way by flattery, what do you think he's going to do next? Now I'm going to try slander. I come up to someone and I flatter them. That doesn't work, so now what do I do? I talk bad about him behind his back. Is a rule, you shouldn't say something to someone's face, good things. You shouldn't say a good thing to someone's face that you're not already saying behind his back. And you shouldn't say a bad thing to someone behind his back that you're already not saying to his face. If you're going to say something good about someone, make sure you're willing to, and you do say it behind his back. And if you're willing to say something bad about someone, make sure you're willing and you do say it to his face. W.S. Plumer said, flattery and slander are branches of the same trade and are carried on by the same person. When people can't get their way by flattery, they resort to slander, misrepresenting others. Now, I can move away from the practical realm, and I could do with the academic realm for a minute, but postmodern interpretations of ancient texts are Ninth Commandment violations. So if I'm talking about postmodern interpretations of ancient texts, what am I talking about? Well, what I'm saying is postmodernism puts the authority in the reader and takes the authority away from the author. So now the reader provides meaning into the text. Whereas if you're honest, what you want to do is you want to represent the text in a way that the author intended you to represent the text. So I remember when my wife was in university, she did some English courses on English literature at the University of Guelph, and they would get her to read these ancient texts, and they would say, okay, now I want you to provide a feminist reading of this ancient text, as if the ancient author was a feminist. Wasn't. Or they'd say, I want you to provide a homoerotic reading of this ancient text, as if they even thought about those things, right? So the insert 21st century perversion into 18th century literature when it doesn't even exist. That's bearing false witness. People do this with the Bible. People do this with legal documents. Our government does this with legal documents. Our courts do it with legal documents. The courts will tell you that abortion is a human right. Where does it say that in our Constitution? In the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. It doesn't say it anywhere. Our courts will tell you that gay marriage is a human right. Where does it say that? It doesn't say that anywhere. Not in any of the ancient documents, not in the Constitution. They just pulled it out of midair because they're very comfortable with Ninth Commandment violations with the bearing of false witnesses, a false witness against ancient documents. And what this does is this creates massive amounts of distrust, and it has created many conspiracy theories, which now brings it to us. So we live in a day and age where we distrust the institutions, we distrust the politicians, and we often distrust the judges and the experts, right? We have a level of distrust for them, and rightfully. But what, what then happens is you start to get Ninth Commandment violations on the other side of the coin. Okay, so what's the only difference between a, a conspiracy theory and reality? Some people would say, ah, a few months. You ever heard that one? The difference between a conspiracy theory and reality is maybe a few months. What was conspiracy theory a few months ago is now reality today. Well, that's true sometimes, but it's not true all the time. And so because we, have, we are living within the context of this massive amount of distrust right now, people become very susceptible to true lies because they simply don't want to be believing what they're true by the institutions, by the officials. So any old conspiracy theory that comes along the way will do. Without looking into it, without looking at the facts, without examining it, and they live in some type of nihilistic environment where anything they hear that talks bad about the people in authority, they're willing to believe. Well, that's Ninth Commandment violations too. Because if we're going to believe something that's negative about someone, we need to examine it, and the evidence needs to be able to stand against or in favor of what's being said about that person. And so we need to be very careful within the context, low trust context, social decay, societal breakdown in which we're living right now, because if we're not careful, we'll believe any old lie just because it's spoken against those who are in authority who we already distrust. They, they, they deserve suspicion, and they deserve to be questioned, But nobody deserves to have lies told and believed about them. And so the ninth commandment assumes that everyone has the right to their own reputation. And the churches during the COVID-19 crisis and the lockdowns, what were they? They were guilty of ninth commandment violations because they were complicit in perpetuating government 
lies. They went around and they spread government lies. They were complicit in it and they didn't stand up against them. Now, I've, so what I've done is I've just shown you a whole bunch of ways that people, you know, you're not, things you're not supposed to do in accordance with the Ninth Commandment. Now, let's talk for a minute about things you are supposed to do. What are you are supposed to do as you look at the Ninth Commandment? I talked about things you're not supposed to do. What are you supposed to do? One of the things that you're supposed to do is you're supposed to protect your neighbor's reputation. If I'm, if I'm not allowed to slander my neighbor's reputation, well, the opposite demand is, is that I must protect my neighbor's good reputation. And that's what I was talking about a little earlier. If someone comes to me with a bad report about someone, unless they follow due process and there is all kinds of substantial evidence that shows that the person is indeed guilty, I don't want to listen to it. In fact, I want to defend the person. Because this is required of us. Somebody comes to you about somebody else and says, blah, 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 blah. You say, well, what's your evidence? Oh, you don't have any evidence? Then I don't want to hear it. Shut it down. In fact, you need to knock it off because it's my job as a Christian, in accordance to the Ninth Commandment, to defend my neighbor's good reputation. And not only am I to defend my neighbor's good reputation, but if I'm supposed to defend my neighbor's good reputation, I'm supposed to defend my own good reputation. So that means that I shouldn't talk about myself, and you shouldn't talk about yourself in a way that that deprecates you. Like, Christians get this false sense of humility. Well, if I'm a really humble person, I'm going to be very self-deprecating. No. If you're a really humble person, you just acknowledge reality. You say, well, yeah, I'm good at this and I'm bad at that. Just be honest. You don't need to be overly self-deprecating because then what you're doing is you're bearing false witness against yourself. And then you don't need to be boastful because then what you're doing is you're bearing false witness against yourself. You want to be honest about yourself. Don't overinflate yourself and don't self-deprecate in a way that is, is, not, uh, is not honest. And then we lived through a cultural moment a few years ago called the Me Too movement. You remember that? What was the premise of the Me Too movement? The premise of the Me Too movement was you always believe the woman, right? She makes an allegation against a man, you must believe her. Don't know if you remember that. I remember that. And then all of a sudden, all these people came out with allegations, and then you just had to believe them without following due process. Well, what's that? Well, that's not protecting your neighbor's good reputation. How did that work out for Joseph in the Bible? Potiphar's wife makes a false allegation against him in a Me Too movement. So, oh, we better believe Potiphar's wife and throw Joseph into jail. No, what we need to do when there's an allegation, we need to see, is this substantiated? Can it be corroborated? And then follow due process. Instead of destroying people's reputations on the basis of some vague allegation. And if someone's going to make an allegation, as difficult as it is to make an allegation when someone's been wronged, you have to be willing to stand on it and face the person and, and explain, this is the truth. And defend your case and trust that God will honor that. People are entitled to a fair trial. This is why in our legal system, we still have enough remnants of Christianity within our legal system to believe that in most cases, there's some issues within our courts that this is not the case, but in most cases, we are entitled to the assumption of innocence. Why? Ninth commandment. It's designed to preserve the good reputation of an individual, and the only time that, that, that good reputation is destroyed is when we have substantial evidence that takes us to the point where we are now beyond reasonable doubt. You are commanded to preserve your neighbor's good reputation. It's demanded of you. You don't listen to gossip. You don't spread false reports. You don't follow, or you follow due process, and you bring things to a head. Now, so evidence of charges must be corroborated. We must have witnesses. And it's not witnesses of multiple different events. It's witnesses of one event. Deuteronomy chapter 19 talks about this. Deuteronomy 19 verse 15 says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed only on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Shall a charge be established? You have two or three witnesses who corroborate the charge. Now you can make the charge and you can say it. And we can bring, you know, someone can adjudicate it. But if you don't have two or three witnesses, then what are you going to do? And by the way, this is why on our church staff, and I would recommend this for your life, we have a policy and the policy on our church staff is you're not to be alone with a member of the opposite sex ever 
unless you're related to them. It's your daughter, it's your wife, your mother, whatever. Okay? Because what does that do? The minute you're alone with someone of the opposite sex, then it opens up allegations. Suspicion. No, I can't say this is law and gospel, but I can say it avoids the opportunity for allegations. It avoids the opportunity for false allegations. So it can go one of two ways. A guy and a girl are alone together in a car, okay, or in a room, and the guy forces himself on the girl. Terrible thing. Well, they get out of that room, they get out of that car, and she makes an allegation against him rightfully because he forced himself on her. But he says, no, 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 it was consensual. And she says, no, he forced himself on me. Well, then what do we have? We have his word against her word. You don't put yourself in that situation. You don't open yourself up to that consequence. Okay? Or you have a guy and a girl get themselves in a car alone or they get themselves in a room alone. And they're consensual and they do some things that they shouldn't do. And then she comes out and she regrets it. And she says, hmm, I wish that never happened. I'm going to go around and spread false reports about him. And I'm going to say that, that he raped me. And he didn't. It was consensual. Okay? Well, well, what happens? Well, now suspicion is created on him. And it's his word against her word. There's now suspicion. If you didn't get yourself in that situation, you wouldn't have that consequence. So there should be a level of propriety. Just as a matter of propriety, I don't know why some of you who are in university are living with roommates of the opposite sex. It's a matter of propriety. Protect your own reputation, protect your own physical well-being. It makes no sense to me. I'm sorry if nobody ever told you that, but I'm telling you that right now. It's in, there's a lack of propriety in that. There's a lack of wisdom. So you don't want to put yourself in a situation where it's one word against another word. Because when that's the case, then the whole thing falls apart. The testimony falls apart. But when there's corroborated evidence and there is witnesses, then now you have a case. This is the way God has designed it to work. Now you have a case. And false witnesses, when they're found out, should be punished. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 16 through 20 says, If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in the office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. See what that says? So let, let's say there's an allegation that's made. And then we'll use the, the allegation of a rape. Okay? Terrible situation. A guy gets with a girl. And she comes out of the situation, and, and it was consensual, and, and she says, well, he raped me. And then it's, eventually it's proven that she made the false allegation against him. According to this text, she's supposed to be treated now like a rapist. Or let's say there's someone that makes a false allegation of murder. And then it comes out, and it's proven that that individual has made the false allegation against murder. That, according to this text, the person who made the false allegation against murder, if they can be proven to be a murderer, must be treated like a murderer. Or be proven to have made the false allegation, must be treated like a murderer. This protects people. Because we're supposed to protect our neighbor's good reputation. We're supposed to protect it. This is the way God has designed the world to work. Whenever there's an allegation, there's always a victim. Pay attention to me. Do you hear me? Whenever there's an allegation, there's always a victim. The victim is either the accuser, who's accusing someone of victimizing him or her, or the victim is the accused, who's now being falsely accused. There's always a victim in the instance of an allegation. Always. Just keep that in mind when allegations start flying with people. There's always a victim. Your job is to find out who the actual victim is and to be objective and dispassionate in the investigation of truth. But our temptation, as opposed to being objective and dispassionate, is to be prejudiced and emotional. And we are not to do that. We are supposed to weigh the evidence. So, and that's all designed to protect our neighbor's good reputation. By the way, when there's a scandal, and you have evidence on one side of the scandal or on the other, you are required by God to bring your evidence forward. It's not up to you to say, well, I don't want to get involved. No, you've got to bring it forward. Look at what Leviticus chapter 5, verse 1 says. If anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration 
to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. Not speaking in the matter of a scandal that you have evidence one way or another to resolve the issue is an act of sin. And you will bear your iniquity. If God gives you the evidence, God gave it to you to use it. God chooses the circumstance, you choose duty. It's not enough just to say, well, I don't want to get involved. For the sake of justice and for the sake of truth, the text expects you to get involved and to state the facts. This is the way God expects us, expects us to, to operate. If somebody is accused, you need to testify if you know information. Don't care if you're scared, traumatized, emotionally fragile, if your mental health's not right. Whatever the case may be, God chooses the circumstance, you choose the duty. And he puts the circumstance in you, now you've got to deal with it. And then further, as I talk about what you should do in accordance with the Ninth Commandment, what it expects of you, you know what it also expects of you? It expects you to preserve your own reputation. Not just your neighbor's reputation, but yours. Proverbs 22, verse 1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. Choose to have a good name. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 1, A good name is better than precious ointment. You need to protect your reputation. So don't do things that are going to damage your reputation. Don't put yourself in situations that are going to damage your reputation. And then beyond that, if your reputation is falsely being attacked, defend your reputation. Now, sometimes you can't because you just don't have the opportunity and you have to trust God to raise up witnesses. But if it comes to the fact when your reputation is being attacked, it's your duty and your job to defend your reputation because you should choose to have a good reputation if you're being falsely accused. Sometimes this means suing people for libel, if that's what it means. Somebody's libeling you and it's damaging your reputation and your character and you've tried every avenue possible and you can't deal with it and they won't stop, then you sue them for libel and that's just and right because they're damaging your reputation. If somebody is accused, you need to testify. If somebody's accusing you falsely, you need to protect yourself. You need to protect someone else's reputation. You need to protect your own reputation. And you need to assume the best of other people's motives. People want to impugn negative, guilty motives on people. We don't know what people's motives are unless they tell us. Sometimes they don't even know. And it also means frankly reasoning with people. Christians of all people shouldn't be afraid of speaking frankly with one another. We, we, should, be, we should speak frankly with one another for the sake of truth and for the sake of relationships that are genuine. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 17 says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. What that means, if you have an issue with your neighbor, you don't talk to five neighbors before you talk to that neighbor. You go to your neighbor. This is what I mean when people come up to me and say, I got a problem with so-and-so. I'm like, well, have you talked to them? Go deal with them. I don't want to get involved until it's dealt with. Or if you want me to get involved, we're going to go deal with them together. But I'm not going to be your, you know, the, the conduit of the anonymous report. I just don't want to deal with that. It's not biblical. It's your job to deal with issues. And if you have an issue that's big enough to deal with, then you deal with it directly. And you frankly discuss it with your neighbor. This also means that if you say you're going to do something, you should do it. Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. St. Jerome says, consider your every word an oath. If you say it, it's an oath. Bound to be kept. Your every word. You know what it also means? It means right now, if you're living in the benefit of a lie, you need to come clean. I bet you there's people in this room who have lied to cover up sin and so they're living in light of the lie, and now's the time to come clean and just come out with the lie. Stop living in the lie. Because you're benefiting off of the lie that you told. Or maybe you've spread lies about somebody else. Maybe you've lied about a situation. Maybe you tell lies all the time. Now's the time to come clean and own up to it. The people that you've lied to and the people that you've lied about. Not just stop the lies, but come clean with the lies and make things right. The Bible demands that you do for the sake of justice, for the sake of truth, for the sake of loving your neighbor. This is how you should act. 
You're not supposed to create your own reality and your own way of living, your own false reality in order to get out of God's reality. You gotta live in God's reality. Stop making the counterfeit reality, the synthetic reality. And come out and be a man and speak the truth. Honorably and dutifully. This is the way God has designed it. And if you want to be a Christian and profess a Christian, this is the way you got to live. Now, God's forgiving. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's kind. If you repent, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. But this means you've got to come clean on lies. So what have I talked about today? Well, I've defined the ninth commandment. What does it mean to bear false witness? I've explained why it's sin to bear false witness. And then not only have I explained why it's sin to bear false witness, but I've made a whole bunch of applications. And now I'm calling you to come clean on lies if you're living in lies. Come clean and own it. Step out of the darkness into the light. Satan wants you to stay in the darkness, bound there by his chains of guilt and shame. Jesus Christ says, come out and be liberated. Be free of the lies. Come and be cleaned and forgiven. Don't live under the tyranny of lies. Come into the light and live in God's created reality. And stop trying to manufacture your own reality that's not going to last anyway. Let's have prayer together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, your kindness to us, your love for us, for our Lord Jesus Christ, our great Savior. And we pray, dear God in heaven, that you yourself would save sinners today and you would strengthen your church. Unify us, dear Lord. Help us to walk in the light as you are light. To live is the way Christ has commanded us and forgive us of all our sins. In Jesus' name, amen.